0: The scripture reading today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, to chapter 3, verse 13. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. into the snare, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. In the same way, The women must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay. Um, I'll just say from the very start here that I want to be longer than usual. Um, Fitting these two passages together, I thought was really important. Um, And I think they go together and there's something for us to see here. Um, But it's a lot to get through. So um, I'll ask for a bit of patience, ask you to hang in there with me. And we don't normally preach as long as I will this morning. but we're going a bit longer than usual, and, but it's kind of juicy stuff, right? It's kind of uh, beyond the edge of your seat, um, and it's God's Word, so who cares how long we go, right? Um, our kids' workers care how long we go, so, um, but we've told them already. We've prepared them. This will be a little bit longer. So uh, we're making our way through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. Uh, that is called 1 Timothy. Um, the, the predominant way that our church teaches the Bible is to go through it verse by verse, Um, Not everyone teaches the Bible in that way, and one of the reasons you might not is so you can avoid passages like this one um, that are a little tricky. Um, We we believe that uh, everything in this book is breathed out by God, Paul says that in in 2 Timothy. Um, That doesn't mean it's always easy uh, to understand, it's not always easy to apply, Um, but it does mean that we want it all, right? Uh, So here we are, humbly approaching uh, God and his word to understand something about him. Um, many of you have, have sent me messages this week saying you've been praying for me. Um, thank you, I appreciate it. Please never stop praying for your pastors. Um, if you're new or you're visiting this morning, you've, you've chosen a, a, an interesting week to join us. Um, I, I will admit that the things that, that Ian just read from up there, um, if you read them out of the blue or out of context, they can seem a bit strange and I, 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 would, uh, I can see how you might think that. Um, if you were just to, to read these out of the blue, uh, I can see how you can be really confused and maybe taken aback and maybe even offended. Uh, I can see how you can quickly draw the conclusion that this this Paul has some outdated views on women, and maybe we should just move on to another passage, and some churches do that. Um, but I want to urge you to hang in with me this morning, uh, because my hope is that uh, we'll see that, that what Paul says here actually does makes sense. And these these passages are really important and and very beautiful when they're lived out and understood properly. Um, I said in in week one that if you're going to reject Christ in the church, then make sure you reject uh, Christ in the church and not a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation, uh, uh, misrepresentation, misrepresented version. Um, At least know what you are rejecting. So my aim this morning is to bring clarity, around some of these things that have been misunderstood and, and definitely misrepresented. And uh, Paul says in, in chapter 1 that his aim in writing all these things is, is love. Um, so that's my aim as well. Um, here's the thesis of this sermon. Here's, here's the big idea that I want us to take away, um, that the church should look different from the culture because the church is a family, and the order of the church also looks like family order. But church should look different from culture because the church is a family and the order of the church is the order of a family, uh, which is why Paul, when he talks about the church here, he goes back to Adam and Eve and he says there's a relationship between the way a family ought to be ordered and the way the church ought to be ordered because the church is a family. Um, if you've been around Village for any amount of time, you'll have heard that phrase, church is family. Uh, it's one of our, our core values. Um, and, and that's not just a... A vibe that we want people to experience when they come here. Um, It's a Bible thing. It's it's a scripture thing that we get from the Bible. Familial terms is really the predominant way that the New Testament writers uh, speak of the church. Um, Just one example of many is here in this letter in chapter 5 verse 1 where Paul, he tells the church to relate to each other as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters because the household of God is a family and should be ordered as God ordered the family. Um, let me pray one more time and we'll look a little bit closer. Uh, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called yours. Uh, when Paul writes to the Corinthians that he, he comes in, in trembling and, and fear and he, he wants his words to be understood, not in human wisdom, but with the power of the Spirit, I, I, I understand what he means. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us alone to figure out what life as your household should look like. You continue to to lead your people with your word and with your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for your word that um, is alive and active. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is present with us. Um, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate Jesus today? Would you teach us um, in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. If you have a Bible, definitely open it up this morning and follow along. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. We'll make our way all the way to chapter 3, verse 13. Um, If you look quickly, though, at chapter 3, verse 14, it will remind you why Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I'm writing these things to to help us understand how we ought to behave or conduct ourselves as the household of God. So, again, this is the, the family of God. This is the household of God. So, really, I want to answer this question this morning is, what does the family need? What, what does the household of god need and i think the text points this out at least three things that the household needs uh, the first thing is the household needs godly men and women godly men and godly women in chapter 2 verses 18 to 15 uh, you find one of the most controversial uh, parts of of paul's letter to timothy probably one of the most controversial and misunderstood uh, parts of the new testament um, When we come to this text it's important to remember that it doesn't stand alone okay it it, it's tied to what comes before it in 1 timothy and what comes after it all right the section particularly in chapter 3 about uh elders and deacons right Um, last week we saw that paul was calling the church to be a people of prayer uh, that, that we should pray and worship in light of gospel realities uh, in light uh, of the reality that God desires salvation for all people, that God is deserving the worship of all people, that Christ has died for the ransom of all people. So he, he says, pray in light of those realities. And, and then in verse, uh, verse 8 here of, ch- of chapter 2, he, he, he shifts from telling us who we should pray for and what we should pray for to telling us who we need to be as we pray. And he says, be men and women who bring glory to God in the church. Um, most of the attention, uh, I'll admit, in these eight verses is, is given specifically to, to women and, and men, but he talks about women um, because of the general context that he's writing in, and I'll, we'll get to that. But, but first, we must point out that Paul addresses the men first, and in many ways, the Bible is, is kind of tough on men, right? He, he, just because he spends one verse out of, uh, out of these eight saying something to men and, and seven verses saying something to women doesn't mean he's picking on women, um, he, he spent much of the first chapter railing against men who were uh, false teaching, uh, teaching false doctrine in the church. Uh, at the end of chapter one, we saw him, him give the names of two men whom he handed over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. Hate to be those guys, right? Here's your names in the Bible. Um, maybe we'll meet him in heaven one day and be like, Imenius. Awkward. Um, glad you're here. Um, but... And, Another example is Paul, when he addresses wives in Ephesians 5, he tells the husbands that they must die, right? They, they, they must lay their life down for the bride. So practically speaking, husbands should be the first to forgive, the first to apologize, the first to serve. It should, he should be the one who sets his life as an example to, by laying his life down. All right, so before we get the wrong impression about women, we need to put the men in context. Uh, and what Paul says in this passage to the men is to avoid divisiveness and pursue holiness and prayer. Avoid divisiveness, pursue holiness in prayer. He says in verse 8, I desire then, so that's therefore. Remember, here's the calling to the church, to the life of prayer, and he continues in that same vein, and he says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, don't get caught in the trap, because you can, you can get caught in this trap uh, several times in this passage, that, that just because Paul is urging the men here to pray, that, that he's saying that women aren't to pray. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Um, in fact, in his letter to the first Corinthians, to Corinthians he, he expects women to be praying in the gathering as well. Uh, but right here, he's, he's singling out the men in prayer, and he says, I desire that in every place men should pray. And he says a couple things about how they should pray. Firstly, he wanted them to pray with purity before God, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, right? Paul points out something about men in general. He he says, oftentimes men can be very passionate and very good at arguing, at debating, but they can be very poor in expressiveness and prayer. Paul isn't saying, he's saying, hey, don't pray without emotion, There's a place for your passion and your your expressiveness, and it's not just when you're watching the Rugby World Cup, guys, right? It's it's when you're standing in the presence of God. So he says, I want you to lift up your hands. This is an outward posture, yes, but it's an an outward posture that represents the inward posture of the the purity of heart, A, a purity of heart as well as a sense of passion that emanates from your sender. It's, it's Psalm 63 verse four that says, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. All right, This is an, an overflowing from the, of, of what's going on in the heart of one who's standing in the presence of God. I want you to lift up your hands. In, order I, I, in other words, I want you to understand that you've been cleansed by Jesus. I want you to lift up your hands, understanding that, that he is the means by which we pursue holiness. I lift up your hands, like an offering to God in surrender, like a child clinging on to their father in desperation. Lift up your hands, men, and pray. Remember back in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the people gathered uh, from exile and they gathered together in unity at the city gates and, and Ezra the scribe opened the book and he blessed God and said, all the people said, Amen, Amen, and they lifted their hands with the reading of the scripture. They fell on their face and they worshiped. Those are all proper expressions in our worship. And the lifting of the hands, the blessing of God, the saying amen, the bowing before God. Right? Those aren't just some kind of radical, Pentecostal expressions of worship. They're, these are proper expressions for anyone who's standing in the presence of God. The, the point is not to put on a performance. Paul's simply urging the men to be expressive in their worship. To, to realize that they are passionate beings, but they need their passions redirected Godwardly. They need those passions to be centered on God, so he's desiring the men to pray. Um, there's another aspect to what he's telling them here. Not only should they pray with purity and with passion, they should also pray with peace before others. We, we know from other parts of the scriptures that, that anytime you have conflict with another individual, it affects your prayer life. Um, 1, 1 Peter 3 verse 7 talks about it in the context of marriage that, that husbands should honor their wives in a very kind and gentle way so that their prayers are not hindered. Um, that's a real verse. <laughs> if you're married you'll know that's a real verse. Um, don't argue with your spouse so that your prayers will do something. Um, I won't get too personal here and Jenny's not here this morning but um, I'll tell you from experience this is real. Um, if, if you're if you're married and you are a human sinner, then you'll experience tension at times within your relationship, right? And, and, and I'll tell you from experience, anytime Jenny and I have tension, my, my desire to pray evaporates, right? Because anger, it kills our desire to pray. So it could be said that, and your prayer life really affects your relationships, right? We think of it that way. But it can also be said that your relationships affect your prayer life. So Paul's saying, don't, don't pray before God when you're not right with your brother. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't give, when you give your gift at an altar, if you're at odds with another person, go and reconcile with them. Right? It seems in this specific context in Ephesus that, that the men were at odds. And Paul says, stop arguing and start praying. I mentioned last, uh, last week, last week it's, it's hard to be at odds with someone when you're praying for them, Right? It's really hard to be at odds with someone when you're praying with them. So he says, men, lift up your hands without anger and quarreling. So that's the word to men. Avoid divisiveness, pursue holiness and prayer. And then he tells the women to avoid something and to pursue something. He says, women, avoid distraction and pursue modesty and good works. Paul's saying, recognize what true beauty is. True beauty, it's not physical, It's spiritual. True, true beauty is not being adorned with, with physical things. True beauty is being adorned with godliness. Now, when we get to verses like these, there's some interpretive things that we must think about, interpretive rules that we must follow. And when, Whenever you're reading the Bible, um, we have to ask ourselves, what is cultural about the passage and what is essential and timeless? Right? What, what's cultural and therefore changes depending on the culture and what is central and essential and therefore timeless and, and, and applicable to all of God's people. The, the unchanging part of the text is modesty. Paul says in verse 9, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty with modesty and self-control. All right, so, so self-control and modesty is the unchanging sensual revelation here. Uh, what is cultural is their hairstyle, right? Like some translations will say elaborate hairstyle, some say uh, with braided hair. Um, there, there's something cultural and specific for the Ephesians here. I mentioned in week one the importance of the, the, the Temple of Artemis, this cult of Artemis that was a very sexual cult. And the women would dress seductively and, and immodestly with, with ex- expensive apparel to highlight the dis- distinction between the wealthy and the poor. You'll see that as we go through. Um, some of the women were essentially using their dress to assert their social status. And so we must ask ourselves, what is Paul saying? And what is Paul not saying here? Um, he's not saying that immodest or sexually immoral women are not welcome to Jesus. That, that, that cannot be what Paul is saying uh, because of all he's laid out in chapter 1 about the gospel, right? That, that Christ has come to save sinners, and Paul puts himself at the very bottom of that list. I'm the worst, and if you're above me, then, then come on to the gospel, right? It, it can't be true when you think of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well, in John 4, she had five husbands and she was living with someone who wasn't her husband and Jesus still asked her for a drink of water and drew near to her, right? Paul isn't casting out immodest or sexually immoral women. What he is saying to these women in the church is as Christians, as, as recipients of that gospel of grace and the gospel, you must now be shaped by the gospel, Right? Because of the gospel, we now have different motivations in all that we do, even down to the way that we dress. Your new motivation is not to adorn yourself with that which draws attention to yourself physically, your physical beauty, or, or that draws attention to your, your worldly wealth. Your motivation should now be, how can I draw attention to Christ? You, you, you want your, your worship and your life in every way to point people to Him, And so he says to the women, don't adorn yourself with these things that are distracting people from Christ. Adorn yourself with what is proper for women who profess godliness, he says. What's proper for women who are declaring the gospel and these gospel-shaped women. And what it is that they should adorn themselves with is good works. Adorn yourself with godliness. When you look at yourself in the mirror, look for godliness. Godliness. According to, to Jesus in Matthew 5, men and women, you are salt and light in the world. Right? You are a city on a hill. Yes, you, you draw attention, but, but Jesus tells us what to draw attention to. And in, in you're your being distinct from the culture. He says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father who's in heaven. That's, that's our new motivation in life, even in all in, in all that we do, even in down to the way that we dress, is how can I draw attention to the glory of God? What a new countercultural, truly beautiful way of living Paul's getting at here. What, what, a, what, what is truly beautiful is holiness. What is truly beautiful is self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit that we're all called to bear. What is truly beautiful is that which God sees. Paul's saying, be a worshiper of God. It's not about being worshipped yourself. It's about worshiping him. So he says, adorn yourself with godliness, with good works that glorify your heavenly father. If you turn over to chapter five real quick, we get the context that Paul is uh, referring to here. He tells we see why he's writing these things and, and, and why he writes what he's about to write. it help us kind of understand. Um, in chapter 5, he's actually talking about widows, and, but we see what's going on in the lives of women in that chapter that Paul probably has to address in, in these verses that we're reading. Um, chapter 5, verse 10, he's talking about which types of widows to care for. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 5. But he says, she has a, a reputation for good works, that's what he's just said in, in, in here in chapter 2. Good works, there's a connection there. Reputation for good works, and if she has brought up her children and shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints and has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to, good, to every good work, right? So he's drawing a distinction between these types of lifestyles that are commendable. So, so there's, this is what these women should be going after, right? And then he says in verse 11, "...but refuse to enroll younger widows." For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur, con- incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Uh, besides that, they learn they they to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So think, remember, Ephesus is this, probably this series of, of house churches, and so you have this context of, of these women who are going around and gossiping and, and uh, being busybodies and, and talking about things that they should not, right? So you see the, the context of Ephesus that's specific there, right? You have these women who have abandoned their, their faith and abandoned their, their, their Christian home life and going from house to house, creating disruption. And some of them were in the church and it seems probably dressing inappropriately and so Paul has to address them. And he says, let them be devoted to good works, And I'm I'm so thankful that this describes the women of our church, right? I'm not, we didn't choose this because we probably need to address something here. We're just just preaching the Bible, okay? And we have a household that's filled with godly women who conduct themselves in such a way that that actually draw our attention to Christ. Men, aren't you thankful for our women in our church? Um, Let's look at men and women in verses 11 to 15. And Paul says, uh, we need men and women who fulfill their God-given roles. So it seems some in Ephesus were confused about the roles of men and women. Um, that's clear from chapter four, where the false teachers were encouraging men and women not to marry, uh, thereby undercutting the beauty of marriage and, and God's design in it. Um, it's similar to, to Corinthians when some of them were saying, hey, singleness is always better. And Paul says, no, it's good, but, but you can get married. Um, there, there's goodness in that. Um, they're dealing with asceticism in Ephesus, which says you should never touch a woman, right? You should avoid all that is earthy. And Paul's saying, no, cr- created order is good. Marriage is God-ordained, and, and it's purposeful, and it's okay to enjoy that. And he, he, he really, he takes us to the order in Genesis, and he, he tries to help us see the, the beauty of God's created order. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get into more of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 uh, in a minute, but There's kind of two principles that you get from there that help us in these chapters. Uh, Firstly, we see that God created men and women with equal value and dignity. Men and women are equally valuable before God, equally needed before God, and to demean men or women is a sin against God. Uh, The opening chapters of Genesis show us that without both male and female, then you don't have the full image of God. There's something there when they're together. God says it's not good That is just Adam. He created Eve. You need both for this good, full image of God. So Paul's instructions in in 1 Timothy 2 have nothing to do with the value of men or women. Rather, he's talking about the roles of men and women, which leads to a second reminder from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God created men and women with complementary roles. You you need both. They're equal in dignity and value, but they're different and they're distinct in their roles in the family. Man was created with a role that complements woman. And woman was created with a role that complements man. And, and this is God's good design in creation. It's, it's, it's even in the nature of God himself, right? You see this good and beautiful complementarity in the Trinity where, where the, the, the Father is fully God and the, and the Son is fully God. They're equal in their, their value and their dignity as, as God and the Godhead. Yet the Father and the Son have different roles, Right? The, the, the son submits to the father, and the father directs the son. The, the son doesn't complain that he has to submit to the father, and the father isn't domineering over the son. They, they love each other. They, 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 they have different roles among the, the, the Trinity. Each of them have value, but they're, they're complementary, and they're, they're, they're beautiful in their harmony. And Similarly, God has designed men and women with equal dignity and complementary roles that you need both together And when these roles are played out in harmony, it's a beautiful dance, as C.S. Lewis puts it. It's It's a beautiful slow dance where you need two, you need both, but it's beautiful when it's done in harmony. Is it always lived out in a beautiful way? We all know it's not, sadly. But this is something our church is committed to, that if the church is a family, With dads and moms and brothers and sisters filling complementary roles, then it better be beautiful. Paul describes those roles. First of all, in verse 11, he says women should be students of God's word. He says, let a woman learn. Might surprise some, but the Bible actually elevates women. In Greek culture, they didn't learn at all. Uh, One commentator said, "In the respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appears in the streets alone. She never went to any public assembly. Even in the Jewish synagogue, there was a partition between the men and the women. They were kept separate. Some rabbis refused to to teach women. And Paul says, let them learn. He says in Galatians 3 that there's no value distinction between men and women. In in Paul's letters, he's always uh, commending this list of people, always including women. Women had a very crucial role in the church and the spread of the gospel that that was contrary to the culture into which Christianity was birthed. I mentioned already, Paul's reflecting the life of Jesus who elevated women. He lived on the hospitality of his friends. He needed them, including women. Think of Mary and Martha who brought him in. The first people at the the empty tomb were women. The, The first person to tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection was a woman Again, Jesus asking for a drink from, from, of water from the Samaritan woman is unheard of. The Bible elevates women, but it also says there's a difference between men and women. There's, there's no value difference. There's a role difference. And the first thing that Paul says here is, let women learn, and that's a good thing. Now, how are they supposed to learn? He says, in quietness and with all submissiveness. Right, so in, in quietness... That, that means not being disruptive, as we've seen, that's what's happening in their culture. You read in chapter five, there's probably a group of women who were going from house to house being disruptive. It doesn't mean she, she is never to talk, okay? As soon as she comes into the gathering, zip it. Um, it means not to disrupt the, the, the elders they're teaching the Bible. Um, that'd be a very difficult thing. We, we don't have that culture in our gatherings, right? Uh, back when we were a house church, that did happen from time to time. Um, some crazy questions from men and women. It was, it was difficult to, to deal with. And so that's the, the context that you're supposed to think of here. He's, he's calling women to learn quietly. And then he tells them to be submissive. And that means they should submit under the teaching of the pastor. He, he doesn't say that women submit to all men. Right? He does, he's, he's talking about family here. He's not saying all men have authority over all women. He's saying in the family. Submit to your husband in your home life and and to your pastors and the teaching of the church. Here's the question, is how do men learn in quietness and in submission? The the men are called to not disrupt the worship either. They too are called to submit under the teaching of the scriptures. We, We looked at those verses last week. Paul's calling all of us, men and women, to lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way he's not saying something of the men that he's not saying something of the women here as well and so Paul's saying first of all let the women learn and they need to learn just like the men need to learn in chapter 2 verse 5 he says there's there's one mediator between God and man and that word man is mankind it means humans women and men right and that's Jesus, right? And so, so the gospel is for everyone in Jesus, men and women alike, and all of us must get under the scriptures and, and learn it and do it quietly and submissive as the scriptures are being taught. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is women should not teach in some situations. In verse 12 he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, that... The Bible's hard to translate, um, and that last part isn't translated great because he's not saying, again, that women should never speak. He's he's actually using the exact same word that he just used in verse 11, quietness, quietly. It's literally exist quietly, not being disruptive. That goes for the men who are listening to the Scriptures as well. So, So how do we interpret that verse, especially the first part? He's not permitting women to do something. There's, six, there's about six uh, options to choose from. Um, first of all, there's um, what I'll call the very, uh, very liberal view that says Paul isn't inspired here, um, that he's being a misogynist here, that he's, he's bound up in his old rabbinical kind of restricted teachings and we don't need to listen to him, um, that this is purely cultural. We don't take that view here. Um, Others say that this was simply Paul's wish, I do not permit, he's he's not making a rule. Um, Others say it's a a temporary prohibition, Um, I do not permit a woman to teach right now. Um, Others take an extremely legalistic view uh, that, that say women are not permitted to teach in any circumstance whatsoever. Others simply say that Paul is talking about a type of teaching, an authoritative kind of teaching or they're not to teach in certain contexts. Uh, we can reject uh, options one and two, um, because we believe that the Bible is God's word, all of it, that, that it's his inspired, infallible, authoritative, breathed out word. Um, we also don't take the legalistic approach that, that says that women are to never teach. Um, again, because we practice a rule of interpretation that says scripture should interpret scripture. And, and when you read the New Testament, you say there, there are cases when women are told to teach. In Titus 2, or even in 2 Timothy 1 and 3, where Timothy received instruction from women, his, his mother and his grandmother, or in Acts 18, when Priscilla and her own husband Aquila took Apollos aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. Some will say because Priscilla's name was put forth that she's maybe the, 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 the leader in that. Or 1 Corinthians 11, how, however one interprets prophesying, is women are prophesying and, and praying corporately in the church, leading in that way, like you saw this morning, Right, you cannot read, I don't see how you can read the Bible and come to the conclusion that women are strictly prohibited from all types of teaching. In a village, we come to the conclusion that women must teach, that, that women must use their God-given giftings. The church needs this. And so what then is Paul restricting them in? Our belief at village is that women are not to teach in the role of a pastor or the role of an elder. Um, as I said at the start, the passage is, tied to what comes before it. You can't just pluck it up and work with it on its own. It's tied to what comes before it, and it's connected with what comes after it. And what Paul immediately flows into in the next verses in chapter 3 is the description of the role of the overseer or the elder or the pastor who have authority in the church. And we see that the, one of the qualifications of an elder is that they have the ability to teach. Um, This is the main difference between an elder and a deacon, is the elders, the the deacons aren't required to teach and that the elders lead the church through the teaching of God's word. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of of ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It's core to their role. In in Acts chapter 6, the apostles in the church of Jerusalem, which were a, a prototype of elders in a way, when they chose the six who were prototypes of deacons in a way to help serve the church and, and, and help in a tangible way, they, they did that so that they were not distracted from prayer and the ministry of the word, the, the preaching of God's word. So, so the, the picture in the New Testament and in 1 Timothy here is the elders do pro- two primary things. They, they lead and they teach. Or to put it another way, that the primary way that they lead is by teaching God's word. And so when Paul says women are not to teach or exercise authority, he's, he's, he's pointing to two primary responsibilities that he lays out for the elders. He's, he's not saying that women are to never teach or lead. He's saying that they're not to do that in the role of an elder. And when they, they do teach in some circumstances, they are to do that in accordance with and not contrary to the elders or the overseers of the church. And that goes for the men who are doing that as well, who aren't elders. And so at Village, our, our elders do the authoritative, overseeing kind of teaching. In case they were elder candidates or fellow elders, but for the, the rest of non-elder folk, women and men alike, you should still teach. This is a command from the Bible. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says to his disciples, men and women alike, go and make disciples, right? Baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded. Colossians 3.16, Paul told the whole church, men and women, to be teaching and admonishing one another as the word of Christ dwelt richly in the, uh, among them. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, women praying and prophesying in public worship with humility and submission to the elders. So there's, there's general kinds of, of teaching that we're commanded to do, all of us. Uh, so we don't believe this verse is restricting women from teaching full stop, rather from restricting women from teaching in the role of a pastor. Um, As we see in the next section, is a role limited not to to all men, but to certain qualified men. Um, I said from the start, these aren't easy verses to interpret and to apply, um, but this is what we think is the best meaning for them, and we're committed to working this out beautifully. Um, Again, without repeating myself, he then goes to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and he roots this in creation. He doesn't root it in a in a cultural thing, although there are cultural things to understand that that, that are working out here. But he goes back to creation, and he says in verse thirteen. Go back to Genesis one, two, and three. You don't have to turn that now. But he says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Um, so, um, some will say that Paul's argument here isn't very good. Um. That, that if he's simply basing his argument for complementary gender roles on the order in which God created the world, then surely it means that the, the, the beast of the earth and the, the livestock of the field um, have authority over Paul because they were created before Paul, if you just go by. Um, I understand that, that argument. I don't think it's a very great one against complementarity because of two reasons, um, Firstly, because creation of men and women is distinct from the rest of creation. And you see that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They're created in his image as male and female. They're created, his image, as I already said, has a complementary nature to the Trinity. And The second reason is because the way Paul uses Scripture, and I think this is really important. Whenever Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, he assumes that his readers will know and understand the wider context that that, around that Scripture reference. And Paul quotes scripture the same way that Jesus quotes scripture, because he does that. It's similar to when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 as he's hanging on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus expects his listeners to know the rest of Psalm 22, because that psalm ends with such hope and faith in, God, in who God is. It's, it's not a, 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 a psalm, he's not saying, I've, I've completely lost all hope in God. He, he, he quotes the first verse, and he expects you to know the rest, He doesn't want us to stop with God-forsakenness. He wants us to, to end with hope and faith in God. And that's how Paul uses Scripture as well. So he's not just speaking about Genesis 1, the order of creation. He does, but then he expects his readers to understand Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And when we do that, we see there's at least two things that these opening chapters of Genesis show us about the complementarity of Adam and Eve's roles. First thing we see is God's design in creation, that, that he creates Adam and Eve with, with different yet complementary roles. And there is a reality in creating Adam first that undergirds his headship in their relationship. Um, not that he's better, not that he's have more value, not that he's more needed or more important, but that he's created to lead in their relationship. You see that as you work, you work, work your way through the next Two chapters. Don't have time to do it all, but chapter 2 in a nutshell is Adam is created. He's put in the garden to work it and to keep it. God then gives Adam the command not to eat from, of the fruit of the tree. God then sees that it's not good that Adam is alone. He needs a helper. He needs a companion. He needs a partner. And it's not found in the parading of the animals. It's found in the woman, Eve. So he, God creates Eve out of, after Adam and out of Adam And you have the first marriage ceremony in the Bible. They become one flesh. It's astoundingly beautiful. It's telling us something about the complementarity of their relationship. And God has design in creation and in their roles. The the second thing you see from those opening chapters in chapter 3 is not only God's design in creation, but Satan's distortion of creation, where man abdicates authority and woman assumes it. So when Paul says Adam was not deceived, that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor, yes, I think that's a clunky way of writing it, but Paul's not saying that this was all Eve's fault and not Adam's. Therefore, women can't be trusted to lead. That's not his argument. He's actually putting much blame on Adam. And when he says it was the woman who was deceived, he's not saying that the reason women shouldn't lead is because they're easily duped, right? They're not as, they're, they, don't, they have something that men don't have. That's not what he's saying. They're more gullible. My wife is pretty gullible. But. What he's pointing to, he's pointing back to the picture of sin entering the world when Satan subverted God's design by approaching Eve instead of Adam, thereby undercutting Adam's responsibility as the leader in their home. Right? Paul's pointing out two different kinds of, of sinning with Adam and Eve, to two results of the fall, that that men are either passive or abusive and women also want to rule and dominate. That's that's just straight from Genesis 3. Adam's sin, as as Paul reflects here, is his passivity. In short, Adam sat back and did nothing. God's design was distorted and sin entered the world when man abdicated his God-given responsibility to lead. Adam didn't step up with godly, gracious leadership. Yes, Eve was deceived, but Adam had a weightier sin. He, he sinned with his eyes open. He, he was right there. Genesis 3 says that he was with her, and she turned and gave him some, and he ate. In, it's in the pictures, he knew what was wrong. God had, had just given him this command not to eat this fruit, and he did nothing. He abdicated his God given responsibility to lead, and sin entered the world. The design was distorted. And so Paul's using this truth to say don't repeat Adam's sin. Adam is accountable and men are accountable for leading in their households. God's design for leadership in marriage and the home and the church is good. His design for qualified men to lead as elders is good just as God's design for godly men to lead in a marriage is good. We need godly men and women. listen, the gospel is the hope. Men are not the hope, okay? The gospel is the hope. Because when you get the, the, when you get the gospel, as a man, it creates humility and courage at the same time. You're, you're not abusive. You're humbled. You're not passive. You're courageous, right? You, you use your strength for the benefit of others. That's what a good man does. And in this context, for women, when you get the gospel, you don't have to find your identity in a position. Your identity is in Jesus when you get the gospel. You don't have to go around hoping to draw attention from people. You see your identity in the eyes of Jesus. What about verse 15? It's kind of weird. I don't even have a point for this one. It's just a verse. (laughs) Paul says, "'Yet she will be saved through childbearing.'" if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Uh, so again, there's many views of what Paul is saying here. One view is this means that women will come safely through childbearing, um, which I don't take that view because many have died through childbearing. Um, some are saying that they will be saved by childbearing. Um, if you read the rest of the Bible and you believe in that salvation is comes through faith alone, then you can't believe this verse. Um, You don't go to heaven if you have a baby. Hopefully, we've never preached that. Um, Hopefully, that's not why there's so many babies downstairs. (laughs) Um, Some, like John Stott, says this means a woman will be saved through the birth of a particular child, namely Christ, right? So, he'd argue that in light of Genesis 3.15, that Paul might be saying something like, see what we owe to women, right? Messiah comes through a series of births. That's a good position with truth to it. But the fourth position, which I think is best because of the context here, is that bearing a child can be part of a woman's sanctification, right? That, that word saved there, it can be broader sense of saved, a sanctification, that, that she will be sanctified by fulfilling her God-given role, right? So you're taking into consideration that role, that theme of role in the text. Remember, this is, he's not saying, I'll get to that, but Remember the context of Ephesus, where some were teaching against marriage. They, they, they were, some false teachers were forbidding marriage, which is then logical to assume they're forbidding childbirth. And so in that context of these false teachers undercutting marriage, Paul is elevating it again and saying, no, you don't have to abandon these traditional roles to pursue godliness. Rather, you will find fulfillment in it. You will be sanctified in them. He's speaking against asceticism, which is the denying of bodily pleasures, resisting things of creation. And so Paul is preaching against that, and he's saying, no, your your God-given roles are a good thing. He's pointing to the beautiful difference between men and women. Yes, not all women will bear children, but only women will bear children. What a gift. I hear it's incredibly difficult. I've seen it done three times. But what a gift. What a privilege women have. It's good, and it's good to say it's good. Listen, this is basic Bible stuff. This is basic Christianity, which is why the teaching is under attack today. And why do people hate this stuff? Because it's basic Christianity, and the devil hates it. He'll he'll use media or anything else, but the question we must ask, as God's people, is always this fundamental question. Will we be shaped by the gospel, or will we be shaped by culture? will be gospel-shaped people, shaped by God's Word, or culture people, shaped by the culture. And Paul says the church should look different from culture because the church is a family, and the order of the church also looks like family order. And in families, there are different yet complementary God-given roles. And when we fulfill these roles in harmony, it should be beautiful, Okay? No one should be trampled on. No one should be left out. No one should be hindered from using God-given gifts. It must be beautiful. And if it's not beautiful, you're doing it wrong. It should be beautiful when his design is not distorted. And so then Paul gives us more instructions on on how this is to be beautiful and how to do this and how these roles should be employed in chapter 3. I'm going to fly over these parts. I know you're like, we should be done by now. Yes. I'm gonna fly over these. About five minutes left. Okay. So regarding the family, if dads and moms have different yet complementary roles, and it's beautiful, both are needed, both are essential, both are crucial. No one is more valuable than the other. Equal and valuable in value, yet not interchangeable. That that if if God has given the husbands and the dads the roles of servant leadership in the household, then he given he has given the the servant leadership role in the church to the church family to the elders. So, so it's, it's helpful to all, uh, every analogy kind of breaks down at some point, but it's helpful to think of the, the, the dads of the church as the elders, um, which is why Paul, after giving the instructions on the role of men and women in chapter two in worship, he then flows into the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter three. Um, uh, so after saying a lot in a few verses about the roles of men and women in leadership, he then identifies two primary leadership roles in the church. Firstly, the office of the overseer, or depending on which part of the scripture you're in, the elder, the pastor, even the bishop. Maybe I should bring that one back. Um, the New Testament writers, they use those terms interchangeably. Bishop John. Um, those are all interchangeable terms to use about this, this office, of the elder, of the overseer. Um, so back again to the question of what does the household of God need? Firstly, we saw that we need godly men and godly women. And secondly, we're shown that we need faithful overseers. Right? Paul spends these seven verses giving the qualifications of an elder or an overseer. Um, so not anyone can be an elder. Not all men are elders. Most men aren't elders. But here Paul says, make sure that the elders that you, that you appoint in your church are this kind of men. And if they're not, then don't make them one. And if they already are and they're not, then get rid of them. And I hope you hold that to us as well. Get rid of us if we're not meeting these qualifications. Um, So again, I won't say everything this morning, but it's important to note that when the Bible talks about uh, elders, it's always in the plural, right? Almost every single case is the plurality of elders caring for the local assembly. It's not just one person at the top. It's a plurality of pastors leading together. And what do they do? Um, Here's a table. I'll put it all in a table on the screen. Um, Gives a pretty good description of what the role of a New Testament overseer is. This is from a book called The Shepherd Leader, um, which categorizes the role into these four main categories of knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting the the flock of God. Uh, Notice at the bottom, it's all undergirded with prayer and ministry of the word. So that's Acts chapter six. This is how you do all of these things. Um, And it really breaks it up into... The kind of macro, the public corporate ministry, and the micro, the relational, uh, personal aspect of the role. And 1 Peter 5 tells the elders to uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? So you must know the flock that you are among, smell like the flock, be one of the sheep in a sense, know the flock corporately and personally, caring for the sheep. This is why our church is big on uh, church membership. And um, if 13 says we'll have to give an account for how we lead you one day, then it's important to know who we are, we are given an account for. Then there's feeding, okay, involves Bible teaching, administering the sacraments, discipleship, et cetera. Um, there's, what do they do? Feeding, that's leading, say on a corporate level, giving direction for the church, uh, vision casting. On a personal level, giving example, living as an example, uh, meeting your members of your church and counseling them on a personal basis. And then lastly, protecting, defending the church from wolves. Um, de- defending them from false teachers, um, church discipline, things like that. Um, okay, that gives you a snap-second sense of the role of the elder. Um, what about the qualifications of an elder? Like what we've said before, these, these, are, these are character traits that we should all aspire to that Paul writes down here. Um, this is just describes someone who's walking in Christ-likeness, but his point is make sure your elders are these kinds of men, Okay, really quickly. A approach doesn't mean perfect. It means walking in godliness and repentance. There's this an example of maturity in Christ. The husband of one wife, not that they have to be married. That would disqualify Jesus and Paul himself. But if they are married, they have fidelity in their marriage. Or one one woman man. It's, it's literally uh, rendered. Uh, so Sober-minded, self-controlled, they're clear thinkers, they have balanced judgment, they can exercise discretion when making difficult decisions. Uh, Respectable, right, they're worthy of following, worthy of emulating. Hospitable, their lives are open to others, they're welcoming in, they're able to teach. We've touched on this one already. Doesn't mean that they will all preach from a pulpit. Um, Some of them can, there's a varying uh, giftedness within this uh, but it means that they can handle the scriptures and they they, they teach someone from that. this is how the elder leads is is by the word of god and teaching in that sense uh, not a drunker they don't have addictions they're self-controlled uh not violent but gentle they're they're not overbearing they're not domineering they're patient with people they, they've they don't retaliate or act quickly when wronged. they they return love uh for evil they're not quarrelsome okay are, are they gentle and peaceful how do they deal with conflict because there will be conflict. Do they, do they heighten things or do they bring the anxiety down and, and, and bring peace? Not a lover of money, huge issue in the church. Paul will say more about that in chapter 6. The love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. Verses 4 and 5 looks at how he leads in his own household. How does he lead there? Is that such a good indicator of how he'll lead here? Verse 6, he can't be a recent convert. There's not an age requirement, but he must be a mature believer. And lastly, that he should be thought well of by outsiders of the church. Again, above reproach, not just within the church, but without, uh, outside of it as well. That's the overseer. Um, quickly, the deacons, and we'll be done. Um, we need faithful overseers, and we need faithful deacons. Um, we preached on this. We we'd spent two weeks preaching on deacons in March of last year. I'm going to fly over this, and you can go back and listen to that if you want a full... Uh, Sermon on deacons, okay? Um, what is a deacon, though? Diakonos. it literally means servant. Um, Alexander Strauch in his book on deacons makes the case that deacon, the deacon role is to assist the elders with the practical, tangible care of God's church in order to support the elders in their ministry of prayer and word. Um, the deacons are not many elders uh, They're not elders in training. They don't give oversight in the church. They serve the church to meet the needs of the church according to the word, to support the ministry of the word and to unify the body around the word. Um, and in the next verses, Paul gives the qualifications of deacons. A lot of similarities between uh, the, the, the elders. Two differences um, is they're not required to teach um, and then uh, someone once said, the elders serve the church by leading and the deacons lead the church by serving. That's a pretty helpful way of thinking of the difference between those roles. Um, one question you might ask is, can, uh, is the office of deacon open to women? And we hold a position of yes, that the role of the deacon is open to both men and women who are qualified in these ways. And again, you can go back and, and listen to more detailed reason in those previous sermons, but I think I argued that this text is saying not only can women be deacons, but we must have women who are serving and leading in our church in this way. Um, it's a beautiful when the church does, and it thrives, and you see that in, in Acts chapter six. The word goes forth and it multiplies, and there's this growth that's just beautiful. I'm done. <laughs> um, Alan's on next week, and he's gonna show us what we've been brought into. This, this new reality that the gospel has ushered us into. This, this family is astoundingly beautiful. It's, it's what we were created for. I love you all. I, I know I can say, I'm speaking on behalf of the rest of the elders, we love you. Um, I'm thankful for every one of you. I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord that we have godly men and women who love each other, who serve each other, who point each other to Christ and do all this in, in humility and working this out in love. Um, he's all we have. He's all we need. He is our future um, together. Um, love you guys. Let's stand and, and we'll pray. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel that you sent him to seek us and save us. He comes into the world to save sinners, which is every single one of us. And Lord, you give us an identity in Christ, a hope that is, that is future, that, that, is, that is secure for the future. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your sacrifice on the cross. That through your, your death on the cross, you pay for our, our sins, all the ways that we, we do distort your design, we distort it in a plethora of ways. Yet yeah, Jesus, you take that punishment on yourself and you place your righteousness on us and you call us sons and daughters of God. What a beautiful new reality that we now live in. Jesus, we thank you again for leading us, that you are our chief shepherd. You are the pastor of this church. Lord, we want to humbly understand and submit to your ways. Um, Help us, Lord. Um, Help us to understand. Help us where we misunderstand. Forgive us when we misrepresent. May this be a community of love, Lord. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.